Welcome to the Codcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, inviting you to listen to a new series focused on societal changes wrought by COVID-19. It's produced by our good friends at the Massing Polling Group. Enjoy the show. There's no place like home. And during the pandemic, no rule was bolder, more underlined, more repeated than stay home. But that presumes you have a home you can stay in. When the pandemic started, people started losing jobs. Fear was suddenly everywhere. Fear of the virus, yes, but also fear of being without a place to live. The state began gearing up for the very real possibility of an unprecedented eviction and foreclosure crisis. Tenant advocates were on their guard. Everyone should have the security of a stable housing during a public health emergency. We see no reason that anyone should be evicted. It's devastating to communities, individuals, families, and whole communities. And um, it's not right. That didn't happen. The big sweeping eviction tsunami, or mass homelessness anyway. What actually happened was much more insidious. Government action staved off the worst of our fears with eviction and foreclosure moratoriums and direct payments. But landlords who were motivated to get tenants out found ways to do that, moratoriums or no. Homes in Massachusetts got even more expensive. And let's not pretend Massachusetts was affordable to begin with. But did the pandemic change anything for the future? Did work from home alter the power dynamics in the housing market? Or will homes in Massachusetts just keep getting more expensive? And how about us? How have our ideas about home changed? I'm Libby Gormley, and this is Mass Reboot, a podcast about restarting Massachusetts after COVID and what we lost along the way. This is episode two, Home. I'm here again with my co-hosts. Jennifer Smith, hello. And Steve Cazella, hello. So our concept of home changed a lot during the pandemic, and that's something that we talked a lot about during while we were making this episode. So we did a poll and found 28% of people under the age of 30 have spent considerable amounts of the pandemic living somewhere else other than where they did at the beginning, and a considerable percentage have just moved entirely. So Libby and Jen, I know that actually applies to both of you. Yeah, I did spend some time away from my home in the greater Boston area. I went down to the South Coast for a lot of the pandemic and um, spent time with my parents. And that move for me, and I think for a lot of younger people, came with a certain degree of guilt. We didn't want to put our parents at risk, but we are also hearing from our parents that they really missed us and they wanted to spend time with us. So we did it in the safest way possible. Um, but also other younger people, uh, people around my age, um, just moved um, back in with their parents, which makes sense fiscally. You know, living in a tiny Boston apartment with a crazy high rent when you have the ability to work from anywhere, it kind of makes sense. Um, in fact, this was a, a, a broad trend. A study from the Pew Research Center found that for the first time since the Great Depression, a majority of young adults lived with their parents. In July 2020, 52% of young adults nationally were living with either one or both of their parents. Yeah, our household had what I suspect is a variant of many young people's experiences during this, which is, like Libby mentioned, we lived with our parents for long periods of time. 
I love Dorchester. I love our three-decker, but I was crawling up the walls in search of outdoor space during the pandemic. So we actually spent entire terms living at family homes because I was also in remote law classes. And that was very in line with many of my friends and classmates who kind of looked around and did some quick math. How much would it cost me to rent in Massachusetts just to sit on Zoom all day for classes? What, for a year? But that meant that many people moved. And actually, more than one student was doing classes from a car because their home was just too crowded. For me, my home did triple duty as a home, a school, and an office, which was also a pretty common reality for people. I'm sort of wondering now, I think like a lot of people, what going back to the office actually looks like. You know, how often do we go back in? Does everything just kind of snap back to the way it was? Or will home continue to be offices for some part of the week? And then, of course, there's the question, what in God's name is happening to home prices here in Massachusetts and will it ever stop? What a question, Steve. I've spent the majority of my time in journalism covering local issues, and that always includes displacement. It always includes development, and it always includes the frankly never-ending climb of home prices. And it really did not get better this year. These are the kind of issues we talked about with people in the Massachusetts housing sphere, trying to get an idea of what COVID-19 did to our sense of home and what the future looks like for those who want to call our state home. Also in this episode, we have new polling and data to bring to you. So with that, let's start the show. The concept of home took on new meaning during the pandemic. Suddenly, our home became our world, our gym, our movie theater, for many people, our school and our workplace. And most of all, home was a safe haven from the risk of COVID-19. But for a lot of people and for a lot of the pandemic, home didn't feel very secure. The communities that we served um, were in crisis before the pandemic, you know, suffering from higher rates of eviction. That's Denise Matthews-Turner. She's the co-executive director of City Life Vida Urbana, a tenant advocacy organization. In the early days of the pandemic, when everything shut down, the economic devastation was immediate. Unemployment in Massachusetts shot up from 2.7% in March 2020 to 16.4% in April. With the massive job losses came other threats, like evictions and foreclosures. The idea of depression-level hunger and homelessness seemed at the time like a very real possibility. For us at the Massing Polling Group, that showed up in our data right away. The pain was not at all evenly distributed. For some people, particularly those with more of a financial cushion and jobs that could be done remotely, they could hunker down and start to ride it out. For others, the losses were swift and deep. Young people, renters, people of color, lower income households, part-time and hourly workers all faced much greater economic threats. As a result, our surveys back then showed people started missing housing payments very quickly. Denise at City Life saw the impact start to pile up in their data as well. We began to do some work um, with MIT, some researchers at MIT, and we issued a 2020 report that showed that 70% of evictions in Boston during the pandemic have occurred in communities of color. 
This left many, many people in very precarious situations. Public health messages were all about staying home, but paying for home as incomes dried up was a huge challenge. In a poll we did in May 2020, just two months after everything shut down, 29% of renters were already behind on their rent. By August, Census Bureau data found in Massachusetts, half of Black renters and 30% of Hispanic renters were unsure they would be able to pay the next month's rent. To combat the threat of mass displacement, a statewide moratorium on non-essential evictions passed into law in April. And while it worked to avoid crisis-level evictions, not everyone was protected. A big part of Denise's work at City Life is tenant rights. Landlords could were saying verbally, I want you out. People would leave, Denise says, and then call City Life for help. She saw lots of people leave before legal eviction filings because they felt threatened. Some residents were vulnerable to pressure for a number of reasons beyond just income. In um, East Boston, you know, where we have an office and an operation, uh, the tenants there face additional challenges. Um, language, the, the fear of that often sometimes, you know, um, instilled by landlords, the fear of uh, deportation, you know, those, those folks living in, um, without documentation are more vulnerable to pressure. And, um, you know, so those are the kinds of conditions where people sort of fall through the cracks. People who were evicted often had to take desperate measures ones that would put them in even more danger during a public health emergency. So we have people moving in with others. And during COVID, that was sort of the issue. Those people who left without knowing their rights were often doubling up. And during COVID, that really exacerbated the health um, uh, issues. And even the way that organizations did advocacy had to change. Housing demonstrations used to involve advocates standing shoulder to shoulder outside a building in support of a tenant. During COVID, city life switched to caravans so households could stay separated for safety. Tenant and affordable housing organizations had to get very good at Zoom very quickly because a class of vulnerable home buyers could be left in the lurch. Denise at City Life remembers feeling in mid-March that organizing member meetings would change, but they were too important not to continue. It, it's at those weekly meetings that community members first come to City Life and um, can get uh, legal help with their case, where um, members are going to find community and solidarity. It's the first place where people Uh, may sort of understand that they are not alone. All of this was happening in Massachusetts, which has long been a hard place to find and keep a home. Jessie Partridge-Guerrero is with the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. She's been researching housing prices in greater Boston for years and says housing options were slim and expensive well before the pandemic. So things were were bad. Um, Greater Boston ranks among the top three to five most expensive places to live um, on bo- in both the rental market and the home sale market. 
we are up there with New York, San Francisco, DC, um, as you know, a, a, an expensive place to live. This is an issue we at the Massing Polling Group have been tracking for years. In a 2017 poll we did for WBUR, just 27% of Massachusetts residents said they were satisfied with the cost of housing. In the Boston mayoral election that year, housing costs were the number one issue. That was a change from earlier. In the 2013 election, the top issue was education. But as time has gone on, housing costs have become a bigger and bigger issue on people's minds. And it's no wonder. In another of our polls, 72% of Bostonians called housing in the city unaffordable. Just in the last three years, the average sale price of a single-family home in Greater Boston has gone up 38%. So did anything that happened during the pandemic change the dynamics? Did the economic upheaval, shifting of populations, and unprecedented scale of emergency payments make a difference? Has anything changed? The short answer is not really, or at least not for the better. Here's Jesse again. Um, we've had this blip throughout the pandemic where the rental market has been down, the housing market has, or the sale market has been up, but fundamentally the, the structural um, challenges facing the region haven't changed. One of those structural challenges, low housing stock. Simone Crawford is the Director of Homeownership Education at the Massachusetts Affordable Housing Alliance, or MAHA. She sees a lot of frustration among program graduates looking to buy homes in Greater Boston. There's not enough house to go around. And it gets worse progressively as the year continues because we are noticing that so many people graduate and come back to us, you know, saying, you know, I'm looking as far as Taunton, um, going down the South Shore, willing to purchase, but still can't find anything. There are reasons supply is so low, and we could talk about that for an entire podcast. But here are the basics. It's hard to build in Massachusetts, often for reasons of local zoning. We also don't have much land to build on, especially if communities are resistant to density. Building here is also very expensive. And Jesse tells us fewer homeowners moved during the pandemic, leading to historically low numbers of houses for sale. Well, I think one thing that happened was there was even less supply than than is typical in, in the region and in the state during the pandemic because folks were wary of making changes, um, especially early on in the pandemic. Um, those median prices... Whatever they've done in the in the pandemic um, was bad, and going back to the way we were before the pandemic is is almost worse um, without any end in sight. Maha runs a series of classes for first time homebuyers. This past year, more potential buyers were able to participate as classes moved online. Simone says the impact of low housing supply can be felt by buyers throughout the state. Even for those that could afford to enter the market, afford to purchase a home, there wasn't enough stock, not enough housing stock, not, not enough affordable housing homeownership opportunity for people to actually enter the market. So all of these pressures were there before the pandemic. The pandemic hits and it's just exacerbate those, those, those pressures. The state of Massachusetts, and particularly Greater Boston, have a cost of living so high that it is inherently exclusionary especially when you couple it with the wealth gap. 
The often cited report from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston comes to mind here. In 2015, they found white households in Boston have an average total wealth of almost $250,000. For black households, it was $8. Those numbers have not changed significantly in the last six years since that study. Poverty rates for Latino and Asian residents of the Boston area are also sharply higher than for white residents. And a big part of how that wealth is accumulated is actually through generations of home ownership. But as Simone points out, the demographics of homeowning families here in Massachusetts are way off kilter. We know from a statistical um, data that people of color are less likely to own their home as opposed to white, especially in this case where 70 percent of whites own their home compared to 35 percent for black, Latinx and Asian combined. In addition to their classes, Maha leads a program called Stash, a savings matching program for first-generation home buyers. Simone says it's more than just a savings match program. It's a race-conscious one, pulling from Maha's housing graduates for a reason. First-generation home buyers are, are predominantly persons of color, and that is because systematically for decades, people of color have been excluded from owning their homes through many different um, avenues. Governor Baker said he wants to spend $560 million to boost homeownership for disadvantaged groups, particularly Black and Latino buyers. The program, aimed at Boston and the state's gateway cities, would subsidize the development of about 2,000 homes kept at an affordable price. Starting at an affordable price lets people purchase a home who would otherwise be locked out of the market. But when they are looking to sell, they also have to keep the price affordable if they leave 15 to 30 years after buying, generally. This means people who buy these units won't be able to build wealth the way other homeowners can. The thing is, there is demand for homeownership across income levels. Maha moved its homebuyer classes online two weeks into the pandemic, and enrollment exploded. This year, they are on track to graduate up to 3,000 potential homebuyers, the vast majority of whom are Black and Latino. Each year, more people move through affordable homeownership programs, but we just aren't seeing the scale of affordable housing production to match. Who can afford homes in Massachusetts is part of the story of how we're coming out of COVID. But there's another part of the story with lasting implications. What's happening inside the home and how that's changed. More on that after the break. Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by our good friends at Rasky Partners. They're a longtime supporter of ours and a nationally recognized government affairs and communications firm. For over 30 years, the team at Rasky has worked with all types of organizations, large and small, helping each one reach their business objectives through advocacy and storytelling. Find out more at rasky.com. That's R-A-S-K-Y.com. For the last year plus, people have done just about everything at home. One of the biggest lifestyle changes was working from home. If that continues, we could see huge, long-lasting implications for housing. Here's Jesse from MAPC again. The continual rise of, um, of median prices in the region is going to start to overshadow some of the 
um, some of the reasons people want to live in in Greater Boston, especially if they have the option to to work wherever they want. And of course, not everyone was able to work from home. The communities that we serve um, have a real had real large numbers of those essential workers who were more vulnerable uh, to COVID because they were going, continuing to go to work uh, while many of us were, um, you know, working from home. And um, there were, you know, the, uh, the communities that were hardest hit with job loss, you layer that happened to be those same communities. We don't know for sure how many people who could turn their home into an office will be able to do so. But we know that the desire is there. In our last few surveys, around 60% of the workforce said they wanted to work remotely at least a few days a week. And it's not just workers who see remote work as a big part of the future. Employers are saying the same thing. A survey from the Massachusetts Business Roundtable, which includes some of the state's largest companies, found that 79% of their members plan to shift to hybrid rather than back to fully in-person work. Such a shift would impact everything. So if workers aren't um, coming into downtown or into town centers for uh, using transportation, the transit system, there's a risk to uh, risk of service cuts to the T. Um, that will impact, um, that will kind of have a double impact on workers who have continued to have to go into work, both because there won't be patrons, as many patrons in those um, work business establishments, but also because there could potentially be service cuts to the T, uh, which folks rely on. This is where the episodes start to collide. This episode is about home, and we'll have future episodes on work and transportation. But in this post-COVID world, work and home may be the same place a lot of the time. And that impacts the size and shape of transportation needs and the future of the state's transit systems. So how to build a future that's better than what we had before COVID? In the housing sphere, that requires building, period. Because right now, supply is not enough to meet demand. And prices are on track to keep rising. As Jesse points out, there are programs aimed at making housing more available to people, like Section 18 that brings more multifamily housing to transit hubs, plus rental assistance and first-time homebuyer assistance. But, she says, one thing remains key. It's also important not to lose sight of the, the, the need for um, more housing supply um, in all areas, all, all regions of the, of the state. During the pandemic, stopgap measures were put in place to avoid specific crises. Jesse says direct cash assistance worked, as did eviction diversion programs. She says structural inequities need to be addressed, and state policy support needs to continue to avoid what she calls a nightmare scenario. Give folks what they need to survive and to, to keep the region thriving. Because I think another part of the nightmare scenario is that the region continues to um, to become expensive. Fewer and fewer people can live here um, our downtowns aren't thriving because fewer people are living in the region and um, spending their money here. A lot of the rhetoric around moving past COVID-19 has been about getting back to normal. But when it comes to housing, as well as other sectors in Massachusetts, getting back to our version of normal is not the goal. As the pandemic 
um, comes to a close and some of the kind of funds we've had throughout the pandemic, um, such as increased unemployment and direct, um, direct payment to households, comes to an end, um, we can't just drop off and expect things to be back where they were, and we don't want them to be where they were because they were already bad on the housing front, the economic front, and um, the transportation front. Denise has similar concerns. She worries about tenants losing protections as the state recovers from COVID. City Life is a part of the Massachusetts Homes for All Coalition, which is pushing for expanded tenant protections under the COVID Housing Equity Bill. We are really still urging um, the legislature to move forward and pass those that legislation because that will provide protections uh, after, during the recovery um, from COVID. More than that, though, she's worried about the devastating mark the pandemic will leave on the communities she works with. If we're only looking at the eviction numbers, and if the way we measure those is by who's forced out through the normal legal process, we might actually be missing a whole facet of the long-term damage. I asked Denise at City Life what she worried the long-term impacts of COVID would be on the community. I guess sort of my sense is sort of like, you know, a community trauma um, and um, will be, you know, it, it's, I, I don't know. Uh, you know. My concern is, is that the way we see, you know, um, how kids who um, have been left behind and, and um, big setbacks um, for our community and our kids who are in, you know, um, um, who I'm not sure we're going to be able to sort of recover. Simone has another target in mind, lenders. There's often a big gap between what people could pay on their own and the cost of a down payment. Low-income people and people of color often have a very hard time accessing good savings programs or mortgage options like the One Mortgage Program. That program leverages local funds to help low- and moderate-income homebuyers. So the state should act, Simone says, but it will take cooperation all the way down the housing chain. Closing the racial ownership and wealth gap in the state is what Maha is about. And one of the ways that we can help to do that is by allowing low and moderate income people to be able to access products such as the one mortgage product or the one plus Boston product, or if it ever happened in any other neighborhood, the one plus um, whatever um, city, um, to be for it to be readily available. And so we'd like for the banks, that lenders out there to truly offer the one and offer it at a capacity where it, it, it has an impact on the community that you serve. This is the part in the episode where we would usually talk about where we go from here. But the truth is, even as we reach peak vaccination levels and Massachusetts feels like it's opening up, so much is still unknown. The future of housing depends on the future of work, depends on the future of transit, depends on the future of housing, and so on. There are some innovative ideas circling around Massachusetts. There's new legislation being proposed focusing on both housing supply and demand. But nothing comes close to the scale of response that housing advocates say we need. COVID put a spotlight on all the weaknesses that have long been a part of our Commonwealth. And that couldn't have been more true than in the housing sector. 
The pandemic didn't cause our housing crisis, but it showed us our foundations weren't as strong as we hoped they were. That's why an announcement that the federal eviction moratorium would last through July was met with such relief. But it's also why advocates and legislators alike are pushing for better long-term protections. So to end this week, we ask for home, what was the reboot? And we think the answer is there isn't one, at least not yet. But boy, do we need one. That's it for this week's episode of Mass Reboot. I'm Libby Gormley. My co-hosts are Steve Cazella and Jennifer Smith. Next week, we're talking transportation. After COVID, are we doomed to repeat the traffic nightmare we've lived before? Will cities keep using their streets in ways that are more welcoming to bikes, pedestrians, and diners? Will the MBTA change for the better or the worse? That's next time on Mass Reboot. Mass Reboot is a production of the Mass Inc. Polling Group in association with Commonwealth Magazine. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.